this is Ben Burr. I'm with Blue Ribbon Coalition, and we are here producing another episode of Last Known Position. This is our podcast project where we are rounding up search and rescue professionals around the state of Utah that are focused on search and rescues that are intended to rescue folks that get into trouble on OHVs, but what you find is people get in trouble in all different kinds of ways. Uh, I've done some shows already up in Utah County. This is going to be our second regional focus, and I knew when I had the idea for this podcast that I would want to come down to Emory County. I have have some friends here that work in search and rescue, and Emory County is one of the top destinations in the state of Utah for search and rescue activity. There's a lot of cool terrain here, but a lot of things that can and do go wrong. And so I'm here with Wade Allenson, Lee Magnuson, and James Byers, who are all search and rescue volunteers in Emory County. And between the three of them, you guys have uh, how many, like, couple hundred rescues between the three of you. Mm-hmm. You've all been doing it for years and years, at least. I mean, 10 plus years, yes. 10 plus years. And so they've seen it all as far as what can go wrong in some of the most rugged terrain in the state of Utah, which is probably one of the most rugged states in the country. And so I'm, I'm just glad they're here. I know they've got some great stories and we're going to let each of them do a quick little introduction. We'll start with Wade. Yeah, I'm Wade Allison. I've been on the team for about 11 years. My kind of specialty on the team, if you will, is probably motorcycles, hiking, and uh, ropes. And by ropes, we mean rappelling off cliffs to rescue people that are in almost impossible to reach places. Yes. I'm, I'm Lee Magnuson. I've been on the team for 16 years. Um, I've been included in all sorts of of the teams that from horses to motorcycles to the rope team. Lee Lee's being humble. He's actually our ropes team leader. And I'm James Byers. I've learned everything I know from Lee, but uh, <laughs> I've been on uh, 14 years. Um, I kind of specialize in medical ropes, um, motorcycle, and, and the snow side too. Right. And so Emory County, I mean, you guys are unique. You're how far away from the Wasatch Front? About an hour or two? At least two hours to Utah County, three to Salt Lake. Yeah, we judge everything by hours here and not miles. Yeah. But it but it is close enough that it becomes a weekend destination for some of the biggest population centers in the state. You have a situation in Utah where I know all the dealers I talk to, they can't keep side-by-sides, off-road vehicles, Tacomas, Jeeps, dirt bikes, everything. It's hard to keep them on the lot. So we have a lot of new users that are getting into this sport. You get out close to Utah County and realize all those places are crowded. And so you come up with a big plan to come down to Emory County. And not everybody understands the level of geography of counties. So what they do understand is something like, what's the biggest draw in Emory County? Why do people come here? Probably the desert, I think, is our biggest draw. Um, San Rafael Swell is a big draw because it's so uh, so so much variety here for recreation. You know, you will draw like Little Wild Horse Canyon down by Goblin Valley. It'll draw almost thirty thousand hikers a year. Um, we got trails out on the San Rafael, such as a lot of people's familiar with Cold Wash. North Co-Wash, Devil's Racetrack, South Co-Wash, those are popular. They'll 
they'll get three or four thousand visitors or user user days user people I guess yeah a year so we we just have so much variety when the rivers run um, we'll get lots of people running the San Rafael hundreds if not thousands people run the San Rafael we have the Green River that um, lots of people run we have so much variety we have the <clears throat> Manti Lasalle Mountain so we do uh, snowmobile rescue we've done um, avalanche rescues we have such a variety down here. Yeah, Emory County, you guys are the <laughs> second biggest county in the state, right? Isn't San Juan just a little bigger? Yes, I think we're number two. But <laughs> it covers a vast area from Goblin Valley all the way up to, right, almost to Price. Uh, you have the mountains surrounding it to the north and then the big San Rafael swells entirely contained within Emory County. And the most of the time I've spent in Emory County has been on the San Rafael swell. It is. It's kind of like Moab without all the people, mm -hmm. and the terrain there is just world class and one of a kind. But it's rugged. It, the features are. It is some of the most rugged country in the state, and it's remote. There, what's the biggest town in Emory County? Would have to be Castledale, mm -hmm. and it's it's a burgeoning what thirty five hundred people, <laughs> not even that. Yeah, I would say close to that because the, well, the population of Emory County is under 10,000 people, the yeah, total. Yeah. And that includes Green River. A lot of people leave Green River out of Emory Well, County, Green River but... has like this weird city boundary <clears throat> where part of it's in Grand County. and But the point is, is, the reason we bring that up is because these rural counties in Utah, I mean, it's definitely a hot spot for all kinds of recreators that you can possibly imagine. But they don't come knowing what the resource levels are like. A small county like Emory County, it's big in land mass, but it's small in resources. Mm -hmm. The population base is small, the tax base is small. And so you guys are all raking it in as search and rescue professionals. Oh yeah. Why don't you tell everybody what the annual wage is for a search and rescue? It's great pay. Um, whatever you make on your, your 40 hour a week job is what you get paid for search and rescue. So. <laughs> it's entirely volunteer, yes. right? Yes. Uh, usually run out of the sheriff's department. <clears throat> so there isn't full-time search and rescue professionals in in this county, but there is how many volunteers are on your team? There's 40 members that are volunteers. So you have 40 people in this county that they give up a lot of time and effort, their own financial resources, their families sacrifice a lot. Every search and rescue volunteer I've talked to has a story where they've had to leave behind some significant family event or something to go help someone. And so they're doing it completely as a volunteer service and the counties themselves have very limited resources to rescue people. And so the purpose of this podcast was to share some of the stories of things that do go wrong in a county like Emory County that has such a wide range of terrain. And then what can we learn from it? We want to prevent these as, as, as life-changing as these experiences will be, I mean, a lot of times, every guy I've talked to that's been in a search and rescue environment, they have stories of people who literally owe their lives to the work that you guys do. And it creates a very rewarding experience. But at the end of the day, we want as few of these as possible. We want you guys to find fulfillment in other ways than near-death experiences from people who've made a mistake. Uh, so with that said, I, I asked you guys to think through some of your experiences and let's start with what are just some of the 
most unbelievable experiences that when you, you get into search and rescue, you know, you're going to come across some things that you, the normal person doesn't see. But I imagine in Emory County, you guys have had some experiences where even what you saw exceeded your expectations. Well, you know, there's in recreation, especially in OHV, there's, there's at times the line is very thin between recreating and having fun and getting hurt. And, you know, just the slightest mistake can oftentimes result in, you know, somebody getting hurt and, and our, you know, our rescues that seem to take the most out of us are, are ones that involve, you know, a, a serious bodily injury or even a, even a death. That's, that's always a hard toll because when we're out there rescuing people, we're, we're rescuing people doing the same thing that we do out there every weekend. And we realize that, you know, a wrong turn or hitting a rock wrong or, you know, there's all sorts of different scenarios out there that, that can result in, in getting hurt. And, and that's, that's why it really hits home to me because what most of these people are out there doing um, especially, you know, riding OHVs and stuff is, isn't anything different than what we do on the weekends too, when we're not rescuing people. Yeah. One of the things that I noticed with the, with the COVID pandemic, um, and I know all of the recreational sites across the state are seeing the same thing and influx in, um, recreation. I mean, you look at your, your OHV manufacturers, your suppliers, your, you know, uh, Stedman's, Sorgensons, and all these, you, you can't, I mean, if you want to side by, buy a side-by-side, side, you're on a waiting list for quite a while. Um, so it's put a lot of, uh, I mean, there are a lot of experienced operators out there that do a lot of self-rescue um, that can, can help their own groups when they have problems and, and help other groups. In fact, a lot of them have helped, um, jumped in and, and helped assist us in rescues just because they're in the area. Um, but there are a lot of people that don't have the experience and don't realize what it takes. Um, and they're getting themselves into, mm -hmm. into some sticky situations. Now we never complain about going out and helping somebody. Um, so yeah, we get, we get paid in, in gratitude and thank yous and, and seeing families reunited and things like that. So the recreation dynamic has changed a lot because, you know, anybody nowadays, the last 10, 12 years, you can go buy you a machine um, right off the stock floor that's very capable of doing a lot of things that 20 years ago you had to have some expertise in being able to drive the machines, modify the machines. But now, literally, you can go get a machine off the off the showroom floor that can do you know, most of these trails and that dynamic has, has changed a lot because a lot of people are buying these machines and coming out and recreating. So what are some of the specific examples that come to your mind? I mean, we've talked a little bit ahead of the show and prepping. We know you've all been on some pretty gnarly rescues. So, so if you were to think of some of the ones that have been the most impactful or that kind of changed you or you're like, wow, I didn't expect to have that experience doing this the, the the i have a couple that come to mind one is uh we rescued a, a a lady and her son 
and uh, it was near Goblin Valley, and they weren't on OHVs, but OHVs, um, our motorcycles, was the key, the key element in finding these these lost people. They had went hiking in Little Wild Horse and missed the turn and just kept walking out through the desert, and we got the call. Um, and so Little Wild Horse, you actually to make the loop from Bell to Little Wild Horse, you the hikers have to hike just about under a mile, maybe three quarters of a mile on the behind the reef trail, which is an OHV trail. And we've had several rescues out there over the years. And we're, we're pretty familiar with what happens to people out there because we've done so many of them. We've actually had deaths out there. Um, but this one strikes home because we got the call late at night. And uh, a lot of your your people that recreate with OHVs here on the center of field, they know the behind the reef trail. It's, it's kind of one of the, the flagship of the, of the trails. And it's just very, very scenic. It goes through a lot of red rock country and a lot of slick rock and, and some washes. And, and uh, it's basically an old uranium road that has um, decommissioned down to a trail. And it's really a, 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 one of the prettiest trails in the state of Utah. And we get the call at it was it was near probably 10 or 11 o'clock by the time we really got out and got got going and going the 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 mom and the son had been lost for almost 24 hours it was in july yeah this was uh at 11:30 at night it was 95 degrees 95 wow. at 11:30 so it's very critical they've been out in the desert for almost 24 hours you know you start dealing with heat stroke dehydration very, very critical. And uh, it was probably one of the most standouts because we, we were all on motorcycles. There was about five or six of us on the behind the reef trail because we, we really rely on motorcycles a lot for um, all sorts of rescues um, because you can we can get into places um, really fast on a motorcycle, faster than we can a truck or an OHV. They're really good tools to get out and get quick. Yeah, I've and, heard you say sometimes you're always racing the helicopters. Yeah. And sometimes you beat the <laughs> helicopter to the site. That that is true. That's that's uh we, we know exactly how long it takes to get the helicopter from Salt Lake, as long as there's not a lot of wind and things. So we time it so that we know when we can get there and what time the helicopter's is gonna get there. But it it was like 12 o'clock at night, we're on the behind the reef. There's like five or six guys of us on our bikes riding. The helicopter's flying above us. It's got a spotlight out in front of us. And we're just kind of just going through the flow of the trail. And it was just, it was one of those experiences with the helicopter above you and everybody just getting to where we think to start looking. It was one of the, the neatest experiences I've had. It's weird to think that search and rescue that you can have those kind of experiences that it's it's just it's just memorable. It really touches you. And um, the guys went up the wash. Two guys went up the wash, and and uh, we stopped our bikes they, as they were driving up the wash. Um, I believe you were with them. Jimmy was with them, and Brett Brett Guyman, and they seen tracks going up, footprints going up the wash. So they stopped their bikes, and they climb out of the wash. And I'll let you pick it up. You were you were right there. Yeah, and it's kind of a an interesting deal because you never know. You see tracks in the bottom of the wash, and you know you have no idea whose tracks those are. That could be anybody. Yeah. And uh, we hiked up to the top of the uh, top of the ridge, out of the bottom of the wash, and you could 
you could hear somebody. And I told Brent, I said, it sounds like a coyote. <laughs> and he says, no, I think it's somebody hollering. So we hollered back to him. And, and it took us a while. And we kind of played this cat and mouse. And we went um, back down into the canyon and got on our bikes and went farther up to where we thought they were. We were closer to them. And then we go back up to the top of the ridge and holler again. And uh, we were able to um, finally locate them. It took us probably five different times of doing that to, to locate them. Once we located them, um, middle-aged mom, um, and I believe it was a four-year-old son, and they'd been urinating in a camelback, and that's what they were drinking. And it was, it was extremely hot. 11.30 at night at 95 degrees, it's not cooling down much. Um, we were able to flag the DPS, Department of Public Safety helicopter, they came in and picked him up and, and uh, successful rescue, you know. Um, so what, what was their reaction when they actually first made contact with you and realized that somebody had found them? They were very grateful. And, you know, that I've got a chills right now. Just that experience is why I think all of us do this. Um, to be able to reunite that mother and son with her husband and her other son back at the at the Goblin Valley State Park Visitor Center, um, knowing that they very well probably wouldn't have survived another 24 hours out there. Yeah. When we were sitting down at the bottom of the wash, they were going up the wash, we turned our bikes off, and we could hear, we could hear Jimmy um, yelling, and we could hear them yelling for help. And we would hear them just faintly, we'd hear uh, a cry for help, and then, they, they sat and yelled at each other for probably 20 minutes trying to dial in where each other's voices were coming from because it was pitch dark. They had no lights. And uh, it, it was interesting to sit back where we was a couple hundred yards away and listen to this yelling back and forth trying to, trying to find out exactly where they were by voice and not by sight. Yeah, and if we hadn't had those dirt bikes with us out there that night, it would have taken so long that I can almost guarantee they would have perished before we ever got in there to get to them. Um, yeah, that was that was one for the books for sure. Yeah, and I think something that people don't understand about this area, it, my brother went hiking or camping up sort of near Black Dragon area, and they went to go hike down into a slot canyon that's near there. I don't know the exact place, you probably do. And then they were hiking back to their camp and they took a wrong turn up a wrong wash. And before they knew it, they're like, I think we're lost. They had to spend the night out in the desert, like sleeping on the rocks, like man versus wild. Mm -hmm. And and he's an experienced, like he spends time outdoors. It wasn't a, a novice or a newbie. This wasn't his first time. And this area is formidable and you can get, it is kind of disorienting. You can get lost really quick. And so I, I think about what you guys have just said, having some sort of a light. I mean, having a light with a, if that's really like a call to a rescue, that'd be like the most epic thing ever for a podcast. <laughs> right. Just go along. Let's just pretend like it is. <laughs> well, that's been one of the, 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 the fun things about search and rescue too is, um, is the people, you know, you make a lot of friends with, with, um, the people on search and rescue because we have we all have different we all have different backgrounds but we all have a common goal 
and that it's it's really fun and you, and you get a lot of respect for people that are willing to to you know sacrifice time at work sacrifice family time to come out and do these rescues and and you mentioned how easy it is to get lost you know i i've had experiences out there where it's got dark and 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 you're you're in places that you can't get a visual on and i've come out sometimes thinking man i might be spending the night here and i could literally one time i could look out and see the lights on the road but i could not figure out the trail that got me in there to get back out on because uh, it got dark on us and i had kids without headlights on motorcycles and it became you know i was nearly almost lost 10 miles from town in your backyard and nobody knows yeah. this terrain better than you <laughs> And so we, and so that's like a good point to bring up because you can get outside your ability level really fast somewhere like the San Rafael Swell. Um, can you guys think of any experiences where you've actually had to go out and rescue? Like, let's take a side by side, like somebody, even something simple like a flat tire, or maybe they had a mm -hmm. rollover, or so there's, they got out here and kind of got above their in over their head. We get a lot of um, a lot of side by side rescues are stuck. People can't get them out. We had that one on Cole Wash uh, a couple years ago that the their machine got stuck. We just had one um, two weeks ago. People got stuck in um, North Cole Wash, and they left their machine and tried walking out, and they didn't walk out on the trail. And they spent they spent a full twenty four hours hiking before uh, search and rescue got called. Yeah, there are some people that uh, a little bit inexperienced. You know, um, don't have the the equipment or the or the parts to to fix a flat tire or, or something like that, and they're pretty remote. They'll go, you know, you'll see a lot of couples that just go on one machine and they go by themselves, and they're just gonna go out for a quick ride, and it quick ride turns into a flat tire, and there are days before because they didn't tell anybody they were going anywhere. Nobody really knows where they're at. Wait, you've had somebody that's been stuck out there for days just because of a flat tire? I can't think of one in specific. Um, I know I mean, I wouldn't. stuck. Yeah, we've had them out there stuck for two or three days. When you say they get stuck, let's talk about that a little bit. Are we talking about in the body of water or is it just really sandy? Like what no, are the conditions my, that cause someone to get stuck? Gen generally, it's a flash flood. We get a lot of flash floods. Um those, those are crazy. Um, and then you get the sediment in the washes and people will try to drive through the washes and sink. So we, that, that's a pretty common one. No, another one come to mind was that rescue we did in, in uh, Fix It Pass. The guys on the motorcycles, they got separated. And um, yeah, super simple with the group. The two, two younger guys that were in front, they had dad with them. Dad was was an experienced rider, but uh, he, he couldn't quite keep up with the, the two younger guys. And before they knew it, he wasn't behind them. Well, he, he'd made a wrong turn. And uh, that Got one dark. Was, was in the wee hours of the morning before we found him. And what was interesting about him, <clears throat> he had actually ran out of gas trying to backtrack and find. And when dark sets in, it changes everything. 
everything is, it's a whole different trail when dark sets in because you get your light set put, puts out different shadows and you can't get your references. And he had run out of gas right at Fix It Pass. But what was interesting about him, we were all on motorcycles driving up to him and he, he made a campfire. And I could smell the campfire yeah. before I could see him. I knew we were going to find him because we didn't know where he was. We just knew that they became separated in North Coal Wash. And uh, when we got to Fix It Pass, just below it in Saddle Horse, the head of Saddle Horse Canyon, I could smell his campfire. Yep. And I knew I knew we were going to get close to him because who else would have a fire at in the early morning hours? And Yeah. What time of year was that? <clears throat> it was cold. Yeah. It was cold. It Probably April. Been... April, maybe? Maybe earlier. It was... It was yeah, quite it was, cold. Yeah. I bring that up because the weather here can be incredibly unpredictable. I I mean, we're, we're recording this. We're in the second week in October. And just last week, we had 10 inches to a foot of snow in Cedar City in the valley. That's 5,000 feet. And I was on Facebook that day and somebody <laughs> posted a picture of their campsite at Capitol Reef. Uh, which is more down in Wayne County, but kind of the same country as you guys. And they, their campsite was in like eight inches of snow. You wouldn't have, no travel guide, no book, no blog is going to tell you to plan for a foot of snow in October in Utah, unless you're above 10,000 feet. Well, what people don't understand is when they come out to the San Rafael, they think it's a desert. Well, it's, it's, it's a desert, but it's part of the very Western stretches of the Colorado Plateau. And, you know, the, the desert out here, uh, it's not like a desert down in St. George where, you know, you're 3,000 feet or you go to Mesquite. Our desert out here can go from anywhere from 5,000 feet to 7,000 feet. Yeah. So we're very high elevation and the cold can set in really fast here. Yeah. And so that gets to uh, what we've, I mean, the stories you guys have told is not fully understanding the impact of the terrain. I mean, you're looking at somewhere that can be 95 degrees in the middle of the night or something you could have 10 inches of snow in the middle of October. And you should know the whole range of what weather conditions you might encounter. You said most people get stuck in the flash floods. I, I suspect this year, we had quite a few of those when we had the monsoon season this year, that was mm -hmm. all the trails I've been on. You can tell they've been washed out and there's a lot of it might be a completely different trail from the last time you rode it. Yeah, there are a lot of them that uh, wash out part of the trail and you might be too far, uh, like with your fuel capacity, to turn around and go back and you can't cross it. You know, the simple things like that happen all the time. Yeah, that almost happened to me. I was down in the San Rafael Desert and you have a river crossing on the San Rafael River and the cut bank had just it was now a, almost a two foot, 90 degree angle cut bank where it used to just be a really gradual river crossing through a side by side. And I had that same, I was in that same predicament. It's like, I either need to come turn around and come back the way I came, which is really long or I cross the river and it's only going to be another two miles back to my truck. And you, you look at a map and you think, oh, that river crossing is going to be crossable. And you get there and you're like, oh, maybe not. And so those are things people should be prepared for. If your machine's not capable, if your ability of driving that machine isn't experienced and hasn't gone through a variety of experiences like that, you could quickly find yourself in trouble. Uh, so let's talk about, I wanna shift gears 
a little bit. And in preparing for the show, you guys talked about sometimes it's just really simple things. How many flat tire calls have you guys been on? Several. Um, it seems like a lot of them are bikes. We've, we've actually gone and fixed tires on, uh, we get a lot of dual sport bikes. Um, and, uh, we get, we get a lot of those, those, those are becoming real popular and we get some flat tire fixing on those. And then we also get a lot of crashes on those because those have so much power and the roads are, you know, dirt roads and they lose control. And we, we do a lot of, we get, I don't know, four, probably four or five dual sport accidents, or we have to go get their bikes. We, we've actually been called because people can't pick the bikes up because they're too heavy and they tip over in the sand. And we've, we've actually had search and rescue calls to go pick up a motorcycle because yeah, they can't pick brings, them up. That brings up another point. Um, we are, we have a good portion of the uh, Trans-American Trail that people ride. I believe it's from Kentucky to Oregon. Okay. I hope I'm not misspoken on that, but uh, that trail system comes right through Henry County. Um, a lot of people have the satellite communicators. Now, there's a big difference in when you send just a spot SOS, you know, we get a call and from spot themselves, and they can't tell us whether or not you're near death or you're out of gas. Right. So, so we don't know what resources. To target, you know, some of the other companies that have, or the other models of satellite communicators, a little bit of information yeah, like tells us whether or not SMS we need to send text where they can put 140 characters or something. Yeah, we know you can tell us a lot whether we need to send medical professionals in, or we need to send a mechanic in with a can of gas. You know, um, a little bit more information really will help your outcome. Yeah, and of course, the most crucial information that you get with the satellite devices is at least you get that GPS coordinate that mm-hmm. is, is almost a guaranteed success rate that you'll, as long as it's not a really critical situation, even in a county like Emory County, it probably buys you enough time to get straight to them. Yeah, it does. And, and sometimes there's there's better access points than the way, you know, whoever's recreating the way they went in. Yeah. There's, sometimes there's better access points. We can get to them a lot faster. The, yeah, that's interesting side. because I, I mean, we work for Blue Ribbon Coalition and we advocate that roads have a purpose and need. And usually it's that it, we use them to recreate on. But a lot of times the roads are used for access for fighting fires, access for search and rescue. And you have a lot of groups that are trying to close down roads like this. Even if they only get used a few times a year, I would think for that one person where that road was the life-saving access point for someone like you was able to get into them quicker and get them the medical care they need or the mechanical services they needed, and, or just be able to find them in time to direct a helicopter to them. Uh, it's just interesting to hear somebody actually point that out in person instead of us abstractly arguing for it in a BLM bureaucratic process. Yeah, it is extremely frustrating as a rescuer knowing that you can't access that person and knowing that they are going to perish because you can't access them. Yeah, I can imagine. So this, you talk about this Trans-American Trail. Um, does that mean you get a lot of the adventure bike type folks coming? Like yeah, your bigger, the big, heavy. Like 1290s or yeah. like. 
and a lot of them are are you know smaller people um we ran into a i think it was a swedish couple um and she couldn't have been 90 pounds and she's riding a ktm 1100 something mm-hmm. and it just they got into a little bit of mud and she couldn't handle the machine it was so big but she'd ridden it all the way for like across colorado yeah, and she got to the Santerville swell and it and she in. just happened to hit a storm and and couldn't handle that machine in the mud um so we helped them out yeah and i've i've talked to the folks that run backcountry discovery routes which do a lot of the adventure bike routes and one of their, I don't know if he's their executive director or somebody, so a very experienced adventure biker had the same situation. He got into a trail where the terrain got, he got in over his head and he couldn't, he just exhausted himself trying to pick up the bike and had to go filter water before he could get back to, and so these events can really happen to anybody, the most experienced people. Uh, Wade, I mean, you are, you probably know the San Rafael swell, like the back of your hand. You've seen some of the Worst things that can go wrong. Does that increase your confidence level when you're out? I mean, you get out and dirt bike and recreate, mm-hmm. recreate, or do you? What are some of the things you do to mitigate your own risk? You know, uh, every every rescue I go on, whether it's uh, OHV, um, rescuing a hiker, or rope, I learn something. There's something that you take away. I think that's kind of the fun part of search and rescue is what did I learn today? What are the models of lost person behaviors? You know, what, you know, how do people act when they're, when they're lost? You know, a lot of times, you know, rational thought process kind of goes cause you start getting nervous. You may be spending the night on a trail and you know, it's, we've, we've gone out and rescued people that spent the night on the desert and, and it's easy to, you know, to, to find out what worked for them and what didn't. Um, so I, I learned from every rescue I go on. There's, so let's start making like a top 10 list. You know, what are some of the bullet point ways, ways, where's the wisdom? Um, I think for, for critical, for, for survival, and I'm not talking routes because, you know, we all, we all want to make sure that somebody knows where you're at, right? What route you're going on, take a picture of the map, you know, a Venza, Onyx, whatever you use, take a picture of it, send it to somebody, let them know where you're going and and then stick to that route. Where people get in trouble is they don't stick to that route. They'll, they'll you know, they'll, they'll detour off going up this canyon or that canyon and then, then they get outside of the search zone, which is another topic in, Excel, in itself is people leave the search zone. You can, you can literally get out of a search zone and it, you can become very hard to find. It's actually the name of the podcast is last known position. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we knew where you it, were and now we don't. <laughs> it's very, it's, it, there's a lot of truth to that and that, that people, they, they, they cover a lot of miles lost and they, they get outside of where, where you're looking and that, that makes it very difficult. But so outside of that, and we talked about the the Garmin inreaches, the spots; those are those are great. But some of the the key things I like um, are the ability to create heat. Um, you know, something to start fires with. I use those plasma lighters; those are really awesome. You charge them with your USB. You can charge them in your truck on the way out. Those those are like the bomb. Um, I also uh, a water filter. I've I've used water filters 
we've used water filters a couple of times. Never planned on it, but running out of water. It. it was a long day. We had gone on some trails and it was getting dark and we just kind of got we really didn't get turned around. It just it just kind of turned the, the ride turned in longer than so what how we were did you guys know where to find the water? Because well, I, I could probably point to parts of the San Rafael swell on a map and say good luck finding water here <laughs> you know, for the, a while. <laughs> the San Rafael and we can jump in on this. The San Rafael actually has more water than what people realize. But you gotta know where to find it. There's springs, there's rivers, there's um, seeps, there's um, pockets of water and slick rock that the cows eat, you know, the snow will melt and create water pools. And so water, water filters is very high on my list. Um, and then I, I don't carry it so much on my motorcycle, but my UTV is a tarp. Um, we learn in search and rescue and, in uh, wilderness first aid that a tarp could literally save your life. A yeah, tarp. That, like this is the same list that we we've done a show with Chris Reed, who's been on a, over a thousand rescues in Utah County, and that's what he said. Something to make a shelter with. The tarp is cheap and easy. Yeah, those guy tarps are super light. And, and somewhere like the desert, how much is too much water? You know, I have a rule of thumb. I do not go in the desert without a minimum of a hundred ounces of water. A hundred ounces of water will, will get you almost a full twenty-four hours out on the desert. Pretty much whatever you're doing, you can do. You can pull twenty-four hours on a hundred ounces per person. Per person, and that's one of the things we've run into. Is sometimes they'll bring water. Like I was out on my side by side with my son in some remote areas of Santa Fe Swell, and I you actually have to think like if I get lost, he's going to need as much water as I will, maybe more. I don't want him to suffer, and. You're, especially if you're in a side-by-side -side or something where you have a little bit more cargo space, probably bring an extra gallon. Uh, like You can never err on the side of having too much water. If you're hiking or something, then it starts to become a weight management issue of how much can you carry. Yeah, but, when you get into that, you can. There's a, there's a lot of supplements you can use. The liquid IV mm -hmm. propels. They'll stretch your water a lot farther for you too. At that point, you can, when you know you're going to have to ration water, you can, you can make that water stretch by using some of those products. And how many hikers so, do you run into that have those? The ones that you know are experienced hikers, they'll have it for sure. It's the it's the family going out for the afternoon that gets into a jam they take one bottle of water with them you know dad's usually carrying a bottle of water yeah i've been that guy before but usually on a shorter trail and i wouldn't go <laughs> bushwhacking into the santa Fel swell that way but uh, i know what you're talking about yep they'll take a camelback or something and it's just you know a lot of problems i've seen with the camelbacks um they're great but you puncture a hole in it and that puts mm -hmm. you in a really bad situation um, yep. I like to carry a couple bottles with me. I mean, I love the Camelback, the, the hydration bladder idea, the the convenience of keeping hydrated, but having extra bottles in case that bladder ruptures. Yeah. So what about in a, in a machine? Um, we talked about the, the flat tires. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a common problem out here. For those who aren't familiar with the Santa Fe Swell, or you just bought a side-by-side, -side, you've lived in Provo or Salt Lake your whole life, you come out to the desert the first time. I mean, why do flat tires happen so much here? We have a lot of sharp rocks, <laughs> lots of rocks. You know, you, you really need to be prepared with either a spare tire or a way to plug your leak. 
um, and a way to put air into it. And that's the nice thing about a side-by-side over a, a motorcycle. It's you got a lot of storage space and you need to be thinking on how to, you know, how to plug a tire. Do you carry tire plugs with you? Yeah. And it does, do, does like Emory County Search and Rescue do trainings on this or like, is there, like if you're somebody who doesn't know how to plug a tire, where's the best place to go? YouTube. Okay. <laughs> University of YouTube. University of YouTube. not to go get a flat tire on the Sander Hill Swell, call Search and Rescue and have them come teach you? No, we would lots rather um, you call us with a flat tire than you fought through it for days yourself and now it's a medical emergency. So yeah, don't that's hesitate. That's a good point. Don't hesitate to call. I mean, and, and on that point too, you know, we... It, you can you know when you're in trouble and you know you you want to wait for the last minute before you call search and rescue and, and and we can get that and we can appreciate it you don't want to inconvenience anybody but you don't want to get deeper into the rescue um, because when you get deeper into the rescue you're putting yourself um, in harm's way but also us too as as rescuers going out to get you um, so you know that there, there's a fine line and calling too soon or too late, but you, you want to make sure you take advantage of it. And if you get in that situation where you need help, you really need to reach out for it before you get further down the canyon or you get further away from where you're supposed to be and harder to find. Because we can dispatch out, you know, just two or three rescuers and not have to, to send the whole 40 member team. Right. If you have a, the opportunity to give us a little bit of information, we can send just a, a couple of guys out. They can assist you. Um, and it ends up being kind of just a low profile, yep. nice excursion into the desert for yeah, you. Yeah, you don't make the headlines for KSL or anything. So that's how we want to keep it. It's always nice to have the opportunity to make it there in the light, also. It's usually dark before you even get the call. Well, that's the mistake I make. Yep. I always give my life a map and say, if you haven't heard from me by tonight, then yeah. you know I'm in trouble. Yeah, that, that is true. It seems like most of our rescues happen at night, and they happen either Saturday night or Friday night or a Sunday night, the big rescue times. seems like most likely it's Saturday night, huh? Yeah, Into we Sunday like to morning. operate at night because we can't find most of these places during the day. <laughs> <laughs> and we like the rescues on Sunday, then we get out of church. So we like Sunday rescues. Yeah, but then you have good stories to tell for you when you get called to give a church talk. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, one thing that's that I want to give a shout out is to the Utah State Parks. They've been such a big sponsor for us um, with the FIG grant. A lot of people, you know, when they go and register their OHVs, it's, it's, it's a big hit. Um, you know, especially if you have multiple OHVs and motorcycles, it's a lot of money, but, you know, a portion of that money goes to the FIG grant. Some of it actually goes to search and rescue. And the state parks, they recognize that, you know, us down here, we don't have, we don't get paid. We don't have, uh, the county doesn't give us money. We, we're not a line item budget for the county. Uh, what we get is what we get from fundraisers and the state parks is known that, you know, we're such a hot spot. We're probably in the top three hotspots for OHV recreation in the state that they've chipped up and helped us out a lot. They've, they've donated um, motorcycles to us side by side, snowmobiles. Um, it, it's really a great use of your um, OHV registration money. This yeah. Did you guys say in 2017, you had the 
what was it the second highest helicopter yep use? the second highest we had we had right around 100 rescues that year and we were the second highest use of the dps helicopter for 2017. you might not know off the top of your head but how many of those rescues end up being people in emory county that are from here very few yeah. what maybe 10 percent if that and and if we was to say we're if they were from out of state, Colorado. <laughs> yeah. 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 If we used to pick what state, if if you was to bet, if you used to tell me somebody from outside of Utah needs a rescue, I would say Colorado Colorado would be my first choice, then probably Arizona. Yeah. Um, but we get a lot of people from Colorado from the western slope that recreate over here. Yeah, it's accessible to there for sure. But we get we get very few Emory County rescues. And I bring that up just because this is these grant programs are how we get resources from the counties with a lot of the population mm -hmm. down to a county like yours. I've been in the meetings where you've been awarded those grants for the radios and the machines, the motorcycles, the snowmobiles, those kinds of things. And it's, I agree, it's a good use of the program. The FIG grant program is awesome. The Utah OHV program does do a lot of grants to help promote that. That's part of this podcast is funded with a grant so we can educate people and make sure you know before you go the kinds of scenarios you could run into. We want everybody to go out and enjoy these sports. They bring a lot of economic activity. I mean, I imagine Emory County is grateful that a lot mm -hmm. of these visitors come here and stay in the hotels and patronize the gas stations and the businesses and it's, it's nice to nice to have those resources come our way that we we just couldn't normally you know afford because we we probably only have like five or six guys that actually have motorcycles on search and rescue and it's nice to be able to have them available for the guys that don't have them to be able to go up there on a rescue put one in the back of their truck and head out to the rescue and and participate so yeah kind of on the same side with the snowmobiles there's four guys that have snowmobiles and then you know the state parks has been gracious enough to help us out with a few more so so you guys have been on snowmobile rescues or all of you mm -hmm. you've all done that mm -hmm. yes yep so let's talk about that a little bit because that is part of the ohb program mm -hmm. um we're going into snowmobile season what like blue ribbon coalition has been one of the organizations that's fought hard to keep snowmobile access open in all our national forests and throughout the country. And we know that you guys have one of the top spots in the state of Utah is going up over Soldier Summit and up in the Skyline Drive. Skyline Drive. So why don't let's talk about what can go wrong with snowmobiling because that's a whole different scenario, right? Yeah, we end up with a lot of um, houndsmen. Mm-hmm houndsman rescues when when they're chasing lions in the in in the late late fall early winter um or they're checking traps doing different things like that um where we'll have to have snowmobiles to access that they may be on on side by sides or or even in trucks but um they get up and get themselves stuck okay just in the snow mm -hmm. on a like a forest road or something. Yeah. Do you guys have any of the tracked side by sides in Emory County, or is it just snowmobile? Just snowmobiles. We uh we we get a few snowmobile rescues. People out of gas. People overdue. Um and and another thing that we do a lot of training for that's uh, at the top of the canyon there in Huntington is avalanches. 
We do a lot of avalanche training. Um, yeah, we work pretty closely with uh, San Pete County. Um, a lot of our area that we have closer access to, or if they're on multiple calls on the western side of, of the Manti LaSalle, we'll assist them. If they have calls that are on this side, we'll come up from this side and go help them okay. um, take care of some of those calls. Have you ever had any avalanche incidents, like where people have been stuck in an avalanche and you've mm -hmm. had to go? Yeah, there was one on Electric Lake a few years ago. Um, two brothers were up skiing. Um, doing some backcountry skiing where they hike in with the skins on their skis and mm -hmm. ski down the slopes. And um, the one brother was able to make it out, but the other one, um, he perished in that avalanche. And that, uh, you know, we're never, never too proud to ask for help. San Pete County was right there helping us the whole time. So um, we we will pool our resources with state parks and and uh, any resource we need. I mean, sheriff's really good to get on the phone and start calling multiple re multiple. And so how long did it take you guys to get, so if there's an avalanche like that up Electric Lake, you guys are down here in the valley. I mean, how long does it take a search and rescue team to get fully mobilized to go rescue someone from an avalanche? Well, when I got the call, it probably took me two hours to get there because I have to load the sled uh -huh. on the truck, drive. I'm the farthest south. Um, from anybody, so time I load and get there is two hours. And then it's dark, you're going into known avalanche territory. Um, and a lot of times you're you're held off, you know. Um, Utah Avalanche, they're really good to, they're a great resource that we use. Um, and they'll, they'll hold us off for our own good, knowing that the areas are not safe. Yeah. And so I've done, like, I've gone backcountry snowboarding and I got the avalanche training. If people are going to go into the backcountry like that in the winter, the, the reason I asked that question is because you probably don't, you think, oh, if I'm in an avalanche, maybe I have the, the life jet, the air vest things that keep you kind of suspended within the snow drifting. But once it stops, you're going to be stuck. And then the clock's going to start ticking. And in a county like Emory County, like if you get stuck in an avalanche in Little Cottonwood Canyon and you have all the resources of those ski resorts right there by you and they have all their ski patrols and search and rest, like you probably are getting, if somebody gets stuck in an avalanche around the Salt Lake Valley, you're probably getting responders there within a few minutes or less than an hour. Somewhere, if you're getting down in these more remote mountains in central and southern Utah, you're leaning on guys like you. You live down in these rural valleys, yeah, getting up us, into the mountains. It, you could be stuck up there for hours. Generally, for an avalanche, if you are not rescued by the people in your group, by time search and rescue gets called out, it's a recovery. It's yeah. finding a body. An avalanche, you got to be rescued within minutes. Of yeah, if anything, if anything comes out of, out of the, this podcast... Your groups need to be familiar with your gear. Yeah, train. I know it sounds ridiculous, but when I go with my kids, I'll go with my kids and my wife, and we'll do scenarios. You know, especially we'll take a day that it's cloudy and the riding's not that good. Um, you've got the flat light, and we'll we'll bury beacons um, and let the kids. The kids all know how to probe. They know how to shovel. They know how their beacons work. Um, you've got to 
be proactive with training. I know there's a lot of different avenues out there for avalanche training. Utah Avalanche, if you can't find anything, find somebody with Utah Avalanche. They will know of a training course or they'll put one on for you. Yeah, I think, was it Phil Lyman did a bill that kind of increased resources in the state for avalanche training and safety. And so the mm-hmm. state does have a lot of resources for that. We can link to some of those on, on our podcast. We can put a link. We have, uh, we have a great forecaster, Brett Kopernick. He's our Manti LaSalle for avalanche forecaster. He works really close with us with search and rescue. He comes to our meetings during the winter and, and talks we about with him several times a year just as a, a resource. And would it be, I mean, do you bring him up because it'd be a good idea if you're going to go up into the high country and snowmobile or backcountry ski or something? Is it common for people to reach out to the forecaster and just yep. say, what are the conditions? Yep. And yeah, he I updates text. it. When I see things, I'll go on the south end of the skyline. He doesn't always get the opportunities to get down in that area. So I will let him know every night when I get home. I let him know what the conditions were, what I saw, uh-huh. so that he's familiar with that. He knows, hey, I might need to go check that area out a little bit more. It looks like it's going to get dangerous. Okay. Um, but, yeah, it's a network. He's, it's all a network. He's very yeah. active in updating information. And the point is making sure that the users, your end recreation users, not the guys like you that are involved at a higher level with this stuff. Learn how to find those resources yeah. and learn how to use them. By the time you're calling search and rescue for an avalanche in Emory County, it's most likely gonna be a recovery, like Wade said. Yeah. You know, when you, you mentioned know your equipment, another aspect to that is you're only as good as the weakest rider in your group or hiker or mountain biker. Yeah, and be That's, considerate. Be considerate of those people in your groups, you know. You got to know that you can't push them to 100% of their ability. You need to back that off a little bit. You know, you don't take your your four-year-old son and expect he's going to make a 10-mile hike. Yeah. We get a lot of that on the five miles of hell. You get advanced riders that will bring in moderate riders. You know, let's go ride this. You know, it's, it's one of the hardest trails in Utah. So let's back up. So five miles of hell. Is actually nine miles. It's actually nine miles. So the name is wrong. Yeah. Uh, but where is this exactly? It's on, uh, it's the Temple Mountain Motorcycle Trail System. So it's down okay. by Temple Mountain. So it's Temple Mountain. Uh-huh. You have dirt the, bikers, right? That's yep. kind of the main draw. And I'm going to assume it's pretty epic terrain. It's like, it is. It's going to be on people's bucket list. Absolutely. You could go out there at any time on a weekend and there'll be several cars in the parking lot. And a lot of them will be from out of Utah. People come from... I've actually been out there with people um, from England out there. I've ran, I've ran, you run into people from all. It's just such if you, you can just Google it and there's hundreds of videos of the five miles of hell. And it's nine miles and it'll take you four or five hours to do it. And people will really get in over their heads. They'll take in, you know, it's a, it's a very advanced ride. They'll take in moderate um, riders and get, they'll get in trouble. They'll get hurt. They'll break clutch levers. They'll they'll put their brakes through the sides of the case, or the case will will break. And there's there's a lot of mechanical problems that can go on there. And you know people will drag others into those situations that they're just not there. And then you. But are there enough people there that if something like that happens, you can generally count on that somebody else will be there and help you get out? Or why do you guys get called in? We, we get called because they get stuck and can't get out. Or they end up with medical emergencies. Medical emergencies. Cardiacs. There's a guy passed away down there last year, yeah. two years ago. No, no, it was, uh, it was the spring. 
It was this spring we had uh, a guy have cardiac arrest right on the trail. Wow. Can't say that, that it was blamed on the conditions yeah, of the trail, but we've had a lot of dislocations down there, broken shoulders. You get a lot of people, you know, they get dehydrated. Their bodies, you know, work harder than what they would normal normally work. And people find themselves in, in dire straits down there. On those. Yeah. They'll start off with a diabetic emergency from the dehydration. and then Yeah, I broke my shoulder mountain biking a couple of years ago, and I was near St. George, and I was still... Like I felt like I was too far away from the emergency room. Like you have a good bone break out in the middle of nowhere and you your body goes into shock and it's just a, what you're capable of doing at that point becomes very limited. And that is a prime example, the five miles of hell trail. I consider myself a pretty experienced rider. And I went down with another guy and I couldn't make it very far in there. It was dark. To access that guy with a dislocated shoulder. I couldn't make it in. One of the other guys that had rode the trail quite a few times, he was able to get in and help help the guy get out. Yeah. Um, you take an area like that where you're pushing your limits. Same thing with snow. You get in some of those areas where you're pushing your limits. You got to understand that the search and rescue members that are coming to help you, their skill levels. I mean, they don't. They don't, probably don't ride as much as you do if you're in those areas. Yeah, and it's do you guys, what kind of medical training do you guys get? Like, would you know how to treat a dislocated shoulder uh-huh. on the spot? Yeah, we have uh, probably 50% of our team is trained as wilderness first responders. We have wilderness EMTs, EMTs, and advanced EMTs. And we have two PAs. Two, two physicians assistants, yes. Okay. All three of you guys are trained on ropes? Uh-huh. Yeah. So I know this is like a podcast that focuses on OHP, and we've talked a lot about that, but... I imagine some of the rope rescues are pretty intense as well. They're they're probably some of our most intense because it's high risk to the rescuer. Um, it, you know, it could come down to one knot. You know, your life is on on one knot. Um, and generally, when we get called out to a rescue, it, it's pretty critical when when you know because you don't have a lot of wiggle room on something going wrong with ropes. It's generally uh What are the types of recreators that usually get into the, t- the kind of trouble that's gonna require you guys to come out and get your ropes all out on the scene? Like, I'm just curious. We've rescued anybody from experienced canyoneers to Boy Scouts. Yep. Um, we've rescued people, small families, young families. We, we you know, we, we had one rescue at, uh, Goblin Valley at the, uh, what's it called? The layer? Goblin's layer. Goblin's layer. We can expound on that. Yeah. Why don't you tell us about that? You were the rescuer. So what we had with that one is a lady had repelled and she threw her rope over and repelled and there was a knot in the rope and she didn't see it until she got down and then was stuck on the knot and she dangled there for like seven hours. Yeah, luckily she was familiar with suspension trauma and was able to to keep wiggling around enough to keep the circulation until Lee got down there. Yeah, so by the time we got there, it was dark. Um, Part of us hiked in, part of us flew in with the DPS helicopter. When they dropped us off, we didn't know the area. We found a trail. We ended up finding the the repel spot, and then they lowered they lowered me down and hooked onto her. We lowered it, then they lowered us down all the way to the bottom and then was able to hike out after that. So, yeah. 
So she was hanging there for seven hours. Seven mm-hmm. hours. So what is suspension trauma? If you're like a rock climber, is it just that? So what it is, it's when um, your your heart needs the outer extremities to move because that helps get the blood and all the toxins back into the organs that clean it. And when you don't move it, all those toxins go out to your, your fingers, your toes, your arms, your legs, and um, the body just can't clean it. And the thing you got to be careful of is once those toxins get released, then they'll go to the brain or to the heart, and it can be it can be very life threatening, very life threatening. We had a girl um, caught in uh, we had to use um, the soap, zero gravity, and zero gravity. Jimmy was on that one. He pulled her out of that one. So what's zero gravity for the people that don't know? Zero gravity is a canyon. I believe it's also okay. called Little uh, Little Erdley. Um, it's down in the Santa Fe Reef. Um, and she had it's it's hourglass shaped so there's a place you have to to chimney to get through and she slipped and this was the second rescue we had three rescues that year in the same spot within the same within five feet there's a there's a place in that canyon that it hourglasses so when they slip down through between their pelvis and their rib cage they're fish hooked and they can't go down and they can't go up. Hmm. So um, we actually had to put several um, pulley systems on her. We used we used the Aztec pulley systems, um, and then with the main main rig from above, dual tension system from above, we had to pour dish soap uh, down her front and her back, and that was a she it it took us seven hours to get her out and she definitely suffered from some suspension trauma she was in icu for quite a while Mm -hmm. and what was fun about her is when she got out of icu matter of fact when we brought her out to keep the the toxins from flowing we wouldn't let her lay down once we got her out we even put her on the helicopter sitting because we wanted her you know we wanted the brain and the heart to be above the outer extremities but what was cool about her is is uh she came back when she got out at ICU and brought us a cake to tell us thanks. That was that, that really touched me. I did. Yeah. Because a lot of times, you know, th- there's people sometimes that will send us thank you cards. We get quite a few though. Some people even send us some money. But she came up and brought us a cake, and that was way cool. So the Emory County EMS does take cake donations. We do. <laughs> Chocolate cake, especially. Okay. That's good for people to know. <laughs> But you guys do run, I mean, you guys do accept donations, right? We do. If we were to put a link to this, I mean, I'm assuming there's a website or somewhere. Uh, I told you, I think that everybody should be donating regularly to search and register. If you do these sports, I mean, obviously, if you buy the OHP machines, you're registering, paying those sticker costs, and that does help a lot. But it's one of those, I mean, you guys are doing everything volunteer and what do you like if somebody donates to Emory County Search and Rescue? What are the what does the money get used for? It may be used for rope. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be used by carabiners or or specific gear for rope rescue. It might buy a, an avalanche beacon. It so might hire for, like for the motorcycle snowshoes, batteries. Um, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of gear that most ninety percent of the members of this team don't use on a regular basis. The only time they would ever use that gear would be on a rescue. And 
probably 90% of the gear that's used is is owned by the members. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, uh, I take my dirt bike or my snowmobile or my side-by-side. and I have gear that I specifically have bought for search and rescue. Can you when guys accept into- like donations of used gear or is that kind of a no-no? Depending on what it is. Like I'm just thinking of like, I mean, obviously you wouldn't want to use rope. Yeah, or carabiners or... Yeah, just a curiosity. It's, it's kind of a tough one, you know, use gear. Because you don't you don't know what how long it's been in service. Right. You don't know if a carabiner has been... But it seems know, like a like maybe a used dirt bike or something like that, that if you got a mechanic, yeah. fix it up and then you have it. Yeah, it, it all comes down to safety and reliability. Yeah, I mean, we have to maintain our own equipment. Reliable. That's the big challenge we have, too, maintaining our equipment. You know, we don't have mechanics. We do our own maintenance on them. We clean our air filters. We change the oil in them. We we do all that ourselves, too. We don't haul them down to the shop because we can't afford it. You know, we could eat up our funds real quick. So we'll get a big bang for any donation that comes our way. We, We stretch it. We stretch it a long ways. Yeah. For the amount of rescues that we do and the amount of money that's donated to us, it's a great business model. Um, does Emory County, It's. I'm assuming it's like most rural counties in Utah, that if you get rescued, the county does have the reserve the right to kind of send the rescue costs to the victims? Do you guys we, do that? Or? We don't, we don't okay. do that. Um, we, there's a lot of debate going back and forth about that. I know Wayne County, I don't want to speak for Wayne County, but you go out where Wayne County is out on the robber's roost, they actually have a sign out there that says if you are from, if you are not from Wayne County and you require rescue, you'll be, you know, you will be charged for your rescue. And we, we, we've talked a lot about it in search and rescue and with the sheriff, you know, we, yeah, we, we could probably go in ahead and charge, but there's a flip side to that too. Um, because if you know you're going to be charged, and we get that all the time, we'll get people that will go out and rescue, well, do I got to pay for this? Mm-hmm. And we don't want in people's mind thinking right. about, am I going to have to pay for this? We want them thinking in their mind, you know, what do I got to do to survive this? I don't want them worrying about, you know, well, I got to pay for this. So bill. I'm going to try to rescue myself. And then you get deeper into the canyon, you get further in. And then it becomes a bigger problem for us. We don't we don't want people to have that hesitation because it could be dangerous to them or it could be dangerous to us. And so there, there's a flip side. There's yeah, I mean, it seems like the best way to still give people the right mindset, but then still make sure that you guys aren't eating all the cost of this is eventually this becomes an insurable activity. Mm-hmm. And the state does have like an insurance product that it, I think it's $35 a year and it you then get rest, have to call in search and rescue, then it's covered. And I know that the Garmin inReach does have an insurance product. I think it's not a lot. It's mm-hmm. probably under $200 for a year policy that if you have to use that device to call for help, and then, then they'll cover the cost of like a helicopter rescue or yep. something. And so that's, if you're some, if you're out there, like I'm assuming the woman that you found with the child in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the night, if she knew she could have paid $200 ahead of time and had a garment inreach and not had to have gone through that experience and almost probably lost her own life and the life of her child, that was probably worth 200 bucks. Absolutely. It takes and, one time to learn that lesson. Yep. Yeah. I so, carry an inreach with me that I bought myself and because, you know, 
I'd like to think think of this as a bank account of karma. Yes, at some point I'm going to need somebody's help, mm-hmm. and maybe the the people I've helped will somehow be paid back. It, it really is. That's true. It's just if you recreate on public land or you work on public land, it's just a matter of time before you're going to need somebody to help you. It might be a motor going out, a chain coming off a sprocket. It might be getting bucked off a horse and having a horse land on you. It might be twisting an ankle. But if you recreate enough on public land, at some point in time, somebody is going to need to help you. Yeah. I mean, it, my, I tell you, my brothers is. had one. I've had a situation where we got separated from a group hiking and the group that got separated, we didn't know where they went. I mean, we were fine. We knew where to go and where to be, but it was two in the morning that they finally came out. We didn't know if they were going to spend the night out there. There were rattlesnakes everywhere. And even the most, even if you have a lot of experience, you'll eventually have your own story to tell. If you go into it prepared, you'll do a lot better. Knowing how the search and rescue environment works in Utah, I think is beneficial. I called search and rescue at night. It's like two in the morning and they're like, well, we'll come look for them in the morning. If you don't know they're hurt and you don't know where they are, they'll probably be okay. And, and that was fine. I mean, they did turn out okay, but it was, it's just how it is. I was going to ask you, I want to circle back to you talk about people going out and getting stuck in either the mud or the washes, and then they don't come back out the way they came in. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's impassable. Um, sometimes they're, they're so far out there on their loop that they have to have an alternative route to get back because gas and planning and, and especially a lot of our recreation, our big season for recreation, we have a small window of light. You know, each day, like right now, it's it's in the fall. Each day we're losing daylight. So your your search time gets less. And once the sun goes down, it gets cold. And, and that plays in people's minds as they, you know, oh, the, the route I planned, I can't do it. And, you know, a lot of people don't have a plan B. And sometimes plan B may be a longer route getting back. And you may be coming back at night. You may be, you know, close to running out of gas. Yeah. So that's I, the reason I circled back on this is because I'm kind of curious, what can people take away from this? Because this is the thing, like I've been out on side-by-sides with people and you do a crossing and like you read stories of Utah has quicksand or whatever. It doesn't mean you're going to sink clear down to the center of the earth, but you are going to sink up to your axles. And if you don't have a winch or another vehicle to pull you out, you're done. You're stuck until somebody that can get you out can get you out. And so you never like, that's one of those things that could happen to a super experienced rider with a really capable machine. How do you plan for that? How, like, what do you do to make sure that that doesn't turn into a serious, serious event? What you need to do is first off, make sure people know where you're at. Second off, if you get stuck and, and your life is not being threatened, stay by your machine. It's so much easier to see a machine or a car than it is a person. It's, it's really hard to find a moving target. Yeah, very difficult. You know, you, you'd think it'd be easy, but even in a chopper, it's hard to spot spot people. But yeah. stay stay with your machine. And, you know, if, if you're out of water and you're you're on your last leg, fine, and leave it. But odds are, if, if you've let somebody know where you're at, that machine is going to be very easy to spot on the road. Okay. So yeah, don't 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 leave your machine. And and the reality of it is, a lot of these places out here, they're they're so 
used and popular that it doesn't take long for somebody to to come upon you. Well, I mean, that's true, but it's also, there are some places that are as remote as you can possibly get in the state almost. I mean, there's maybe a few areas up in the book cliffs or, Mm -hmm. but but I've been down to like Musantucket, you get south of there, you get into the Moroni slopes or the slaughter Mm -hmm. slopes and it could be a day or two before somebody gets you. That is remote country. You can get there in in an hour in a side-by-side going at pretty good speed and think this isn't that far from things. But then you get deep into that country and for you guys to come find someone there, I mean, did, weren't you guys saying you'd done a rescue there? And how long did this woman that took some time? Um, she was in Music Canyon, which was on uh, down by Hidden Splendor where the muddy goes through the Santa Fe Reef. Yeah. And, uh, it took us seven, seven and a half hours to get to her, but that was in the middle of the night, and that's two and a half hours from my house. So, so why did it take so long to get to her? Even though I mean, because I think two and a half hours from your house is still that's some distance, and it, I've been on that country, and I know it's not I seventy. You're on some pretty yeah, good dirt where, roads. Where she was at, we couldn't access. We couldn't access her with the gear that we had. Um. There was no trail open up through there, and we had to wait for a helicopter. People don't realize how big Emory County is and how um, how long it takes us to start to just to get there. You know, when you get a call, you know, you're going through your head, what what do I need? Do I need a motorcycle? Do I need my hiking shoes? Do I need my rope gear? Am I going to need to take a medical bag? So you get all that, you get it in your truck, but even when that starts, we could drive an hour and a half to two hours just before we even get to where they're at. It's not like these rescues are two miles from our house. Yeah, how many of them take place at night, about percentage-wise? 90%. 90. 90%. Yeah. yeah. But no, if you're recreating in Emory County, you share common interests with all of us. So uh, don't hesitate to call. When you get in that situation, don't hesitate to call. Yeah. We, we we enjoy helping people. If we didn't, we wouldn't be here. There's a yeah. lot of enjoyment. We, we enjoy it. We look forward to it. We look forward to the calls. We look forward to the challenges. We look forward to what we can learn. And, and we just like helping people. Yeah. And that's what I heard from Chris Reed, too. He's like, he's an engineer. And there's sort of this challenge component to this. You've got to solve a problem. It's kind of like a math problem where you're calculating logistics and distance and time and the capabilities of equipment and machinery and ropes and, and then doing it all under pressure. It's a very unique skill set. I know it takes a lot to develop it and it, a lot of sacrifice. Your families have all probably had to... Yeah, I've missed a few birthdays. Missed a few birthdays and football games and... Thanksgiving. <laughs> and then we have a lot of training that goes with it. We, we, we train once a month. We have a meeting once a month. And then we have a training once a month that we... So if anybody listens to this in Emory County and they kind of like getting outdoors, I expect you, a lot of people that are moving here, that's why they move here is to be next to these recreation areas and resources. Say they want to be part of a search and rescue team here. What is the initiation process? Do you guys have a hazing 
ritual? Or? <laughs> yeah, we, we take them out on the desert. We give them one match and 16 ounces of water, and we make them find their way back at night. Okay. And if you make it back, you're on the team. If you don't make it back, it's a great rescue for us. It's a training for training us. Training all around. <laughs> no, what we, what we typically do um, is we'll have a member sponsor them. Okay. And, and so they can travel with, once they turn in an application, um, then it goes through the commander and the sheriff. They approve it. And then that person can travel on rescue with their sponsor. Their sponsor has to, has to be responsible for them and know their limitations and know when they need to, you know, if they physically can't do the work, they need to stay, have them stay home on that, that trip. But, uh, it gives them a feel for okay. This is what they do. This is what's to be expected, and this is the kind of training that that they're required to. The the, the, the kind of skills they're required to to have. Um, and then at that point, um, once they're they kind of prove their salt, then um, the group will vote on it, and then it goes through a final approval from the sheriff. And there's there's forty spots on the team. Um, and out of those, out of that group, I mean, it's such a diverse group that, um, a lot of different skill sets. So if, if there's a need for that skill set, the sheriff thinks there's a need for it, then there's a spot for you. Okay. Well, I think we should probably wrap this up. You guys have been good to give us an evening here and share your experiences, but just before we go, any last thoughts, any other hair raising experiences or anything else you want to let the listeners know about as far as how things work here in Emory County and what people can learn from the decades of experience that you guys have cumul cumulatively together doing this work. I just, just, it's very rewarding. I, it's, it's one of those things I look forward to doing. I'm, I'm glad I do it. It's, you know, it's kind of like being a coach for a football team or a baseball team or teaching Sunday school. There's a lot of reward to this, and it's it's uh it's been very it's been emotionally and spiritually good for me. After 14 years, I still get the chills when I think about some of these rescues and and the the outcomes. You know, some of them have not been so good, um, but majority of the time, the outcome it's a great feeling knowing that you've you've made a difference for somebody i would say if there's one takeaway here it would be to make sure someone knows where you're going and and to prepare for the unexpected and plan to stay the night even if you're going for an hour hike just prepare prepare for that i'd like to thank the emory county team we'll do what we can to make sure this gets listened to far and wide so that you guys get some recognition and support for what you do if you know any other search and rescue guys, I, I, do you guys interact? I mean, you said you work with the San Pete guys pretty closely. I'm Wayne assuming County, Wayne County, Wayne County maybe San Pete. Grand. Severe. We don't work with Grand very much because we got no. a big river that separates us. Okay. But we do a lot with Wayne and Severe. Those Carbon? guys would be fun. Um, a little bit, not much. Okay. Not yeah, not Salt much. Lake County. We actually do a lot of training with Salt Lake County. Salt Lake County is one we do a lot with. They... Uh, They've kind of, we, we've kind of networked with them. They've kind of done a lot of training for us and they've really helped us out a lot. We, we really appreciate our relationship with Salt Lake County. Yes, we do. 
All right, well, we'll try to connect with them too. Yeah, everyone needs to be on the show. Sounds like.